0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one-dollar-per-month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Factories in the West are being asked, or volunteering, to switch gears and make products to help with the global COVID-19 response. That same thing has been going on in China for weeks, starting, it seems, with distillers of the powerful spirit, Baizhou. That's just one of the small changes that the coronavirus will wreak on the global economy. The big picture? Who knows? But our economics columnist looks back at how past pandemics have reshaped economies, going all the way back to the Black Death. First up though… Israel has been through a year of political deadlock, three elections and failure after failure to form a government. But yesterday, there was a setback for longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, now in a caretaker role, and a fresh opportunity for his rival, the opposition leader Benny Gantz. The country's president gave Mr. Gantz another chance to put together a governing coalition after he won just enough support in the Knesset, Israel's parliament. <laughs> He now has a month to build a government from an unlikely grouping of politicians, whose only unifying feature is their opposition to Mr. Netanyahu. The political wrangling is taking place against the backdrop of another crisis, COVID-19. But Mr. Netanyahu could stand to benefit. The pandemic has already postponed a long-awaited trial on charges of corruption that the prime minister has long denied. And it's pushed Mr. Netanyahu to suggest he lead an emergency unity government to weather the storm, temporarily at least, insulating himself from prosecution. Mr. Gantz might not be keen on the idea, but building any other workable government will be no mean feat.
2: Well, Benny Gantz has received a mandate because there was a majority of Knesset members endorsing him as prime minister.
1: Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent, reporting from Jerusalem.
2: However, that majority is not capable currently of sitting together in the same government. So when he actually tries to bring a government to be confirmed by the Knesset, he won't have a majority. So Gantz now has four weeks to try and find another way of of breaking that paradigm and getting either parties which are very much opposed to each other ideologically, though they endorsed him to sit together, which seems impossible, or to try and prise away uh, parties which are currently part of the Netanyahu bloc, to join him instead. And both, the, both of those alternatives seem right now almost impossible.
1: I mean, it, it sounds very much like the kind of wrangling that we've been hearing about for the better part of a year. How how likely do you think it is to be resolved this time around?
2: That That's a very good question, because as you say, for over a year now, the Israeli public and its uh, elected representatives have been split down the middle between one block which supports Netanyahu and wants him to remain in power and another block which uh, is opposed to him remaining in office however the the opposition block is much less cohesive than the Netanyahu block and this deadlock doesn't seem to be any closer to being solved but we do have the new circumstances of the coronavirus epidemic and that is creating a different sense of urgency And we're expecting that both Netanyahu and Gantz somehow to find a way to form a national unity government and to overcome these issues, but uh, they still don't seem to have found the way to do that. Do you
1: think it's more likely that they they eventually sit down together after all this time of of trying to outdo each other in forming a government?
2: The main problem here is that there's a very, very high level of suspicion from the opposition towards Netanyahu. Netanyahu's proposals... Sound reasonable. Israel is like every other country in the world is facing this this pandemic, and having a temporary government which has limited powers is certainly not the best way to, to to be dealing with these issues, which are which are this you know, big decisions need to be made in very short times. However, the leaders of the opposition simply don't trust Netanyahu's proposal. Don't trust him to follow through with it. Don't trust him if he stays in office to give them any real. Uh, share of power any real control of over the government's decision making process and once the the crisis is over they believe that he'll try and use it in in any way to try and stay stay in office and consolidate his power and evade the criminal charges facing him that's probably the main reason why they haven't really got together so far and worked out a way to sit down
1: so if unity really is the order of the day here then why not let mr Gansby be prime minister
2: that's a very good question. Benjamin Tanel has never been one to give up office uh, easily. And he's, you know, he's the longest-serving prime minister, and he sees his own leadership as the mo- most important thing for Israel's national security. And he's also obviously very worried that if he's not prime minister, it'll be even more difficult for him to face the, the charges against him. Uh, so far, none of the proposals that he's made for a unity government include him being replaced by, by Gantz in the near future. He's talking about perhaps in two years, he'll agree to a rotating prime ministership, but nobody's uh, willing to, to go for None of the opposition are currently willing to go for that kind of a proposal.
1: And what if this again ends up in the kind of stalemate we've seen several times already? How is it to another election yet again?
2: Well, holding a fourth election in, in a few more months and with all the campaigning and logistics and people actually going out to vote, Right now, sounds like an impossible proposition because Israel is under almost under lockdown. Assembly of people over ten, more than ten people, is prohibited. Uh, The government uh, offices are working on uh, at an emergency status. You can't hold a national election under these under these conditions. And even if even if Israel wasn't under this emergency situation, I think that the idea of a fourth consecutive election is bizarre. And we haven't had in Israel since December 2018 uh, a permanent government. and There's no budget, the the government departments don't know what their funding levels are going to be over the next few months. So the idea of holding a fourth election is something that all the politicians don't want to contemplate, with the exception of one politician who knows that another election means he stays another five or six months in power, and that's Benjamin Netanyahu. With the exception of of Netanyahu, everyone else wants to avoid the fourth election, but nobody really knows how to go forward and build a coalition.
1: Anshul, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups...
1: The COVID-19 pandemic is the kind of global shock that could remake entire industries, or bury them. For now, some industries are simply retooling. Governments, including Britain's, are in discussions with contract manufacturers to make medical equipment such as ventilators. What the world also needs is a lot of protective gear, most of all hand sanitizer. On Sunday, the French luxury goods house LVMH said it would turn its perfume factories to the task of making the stuff— and giving it away to hospitals. In time, more factories and companies will have to shift gears. They might be able to learn from China, where a similar change has been happening for weeks.
3: Chinese companies that had nothing to do with mask production before are now churning out all manner of protective gear in order to meet a shortage in supplies in China, from thermometers to goggles.
1: Stephanie Studer is The Economist's senior China business correspondent.
3: Lots of industries have stepped up to the plate. One that I spoke to is the Baijiu industry. Baijiu is a sorghum firewater beloved of many Chinese. And um, this company said that early in February, it got in touch with a sister company that produces ethanol and decided to reroute some of that supply to make medical disinfectant. It's now bottling 250,000 vials a day, sending them out across the country.
1: So there are a a lot of companies that are moving towards hand
3: sanitizer and the like? Yes, the Bygeo distillers are not alone. In fact, BYD, a maker of electric cars, said last month that it wanted to churn out 50,000 bottles of disinfectant a day by the end of February. It's also making five million masks a day, which is really impressive if you consider the fact that last year China as a whole was producing 20 million masks. So effectively, it's now making a quarter of China's usual capacity. Others are Shanxi Automobile Group, which usually produces lorries, but is now making goggles. And uh, we even found that the subsidiary of an arms maker, China South Industries Group, is making 3D-printed goggles.
1: So how is it that all of these companies have been able to, to sort of retool everything, to sort of uh, shift gears, as it were, to, to make these products so far from what they normally do? It, it makes sense in the in the Baijiu case, but a, a little less so if you're suddenly making goggles.
3: Well, the first thing is that the government has put out a call for companies to do this. So it said in early February... Anybody who can expand production lines or indeed convert them would be given special cheap loans in order to do that. And companies have rushed to try to claim these loans. So I think there has been a sort of nationwide rallying behind this cause. But for state-owned companies, they've been mostly commandeered to start doing this. And really, it's not that difficult to set up a couple of production lines either making masks or disinfectant. The machinery involved is not that complex. It can be done in a a couple of days and you can start producing. For market-oriented companies, I think they're, of course, partly donating, but also thinking about, at the moment, factories that perhaps are not getting as many orders as they usually would for their regular products. And this is much needed and very much in demand. So um, they're seeing a gap in the market that they can fill.
1: And I suppose in some cases, the the workers are ending up making products for, for their own use.
3: Well, yes, and that's actually another motivation because strict new rules have come in for companies and factories. They cannot actually operate unless they have, for instance, an adequate supply of masks for their own workers or disinfectant in their factories. So for instance, Foxconn, which makes iPhones for Apple um, and uh, other smartphones, has set up production lines for masks purely for its employees, and it has over a million of them. Ibin Gourmet, the Baijiu company that we spoke to, is using its own disinfectant to scrub its factory floors.
1: And what about the knock-on effects of this? If these factories aren't making the the products that they normally do, that means there will be fewer of those products out in the market, or is that neatly solved by the market that has lowered demand now?
3: Yes, I think for now there simply hasn't been enough demand, which is why it has made sense for so many of them to switch gears. But most of them do anticipate that there will be a sudden rush in orders because of pent-up demand. So as soon as things go back to normal, I would expect practically all of these companies to switch back their production lines to what they were um, originally making. But the Baijiu company, for one, told us that it was already drawing up plans for a permanent disinfectant packaging workshop. So there are clearly some that see a longer term sideline in this business.
1: And so to your mind, this is uh, the existence and the satisfaction of, of a, a genuine need here, or is there any element of the state just trying to goose the economy a bit when uh, both you know, production and demand are down?
3: Well, on the one hand, there is clearly a genuine need. On the other, there are many factories across the country that have found it very difficult to restart simply because they haven't got enough demand coming for orders and don't have enough uh, workers Many have been trapped in their hometowns, in villages um, that have been blockaded because of uh, the virus, and so haven't been able to get back to their factories and workplaces. And so some of the companies that I spoke to um, said that this was actually a good way of rallying laborers back from their spring festival break and redeploying this limited workforce to meet a more essential need.
1: So in in many of the discussions we've had about the the Chinese response to to this crisis, it's a very different story in China for for very obvious reasons of, of governance. But do you see any lessons that other countries might depend on?
3: Well, of course, when it comes to this um, sudden new production of essential gear, there has been a lot of state direction. But the low-cost loans, for example, have clearly been a big motivator, even for large companies like Xiaomi, a smartphone maker that has reportedly applied for a 5 billion yuan loan to make thermometers, masks and and other equipment. I think it does also show a sort of, Esprit de corps and are kind of rallying together to fight what China has called a people's war against the virus. And of course, if you think you know you have idled factories, not much demand coming in, and these products are relatively easy to make. I mean, most of these companies are probably simply ordering the machinery and logistics allowing, they're receiving them quickly, they're getting production licenses quickly and then they can start ramping up production. So it's not something that's difficult to do. I think you could imagine that being replicated in other countries, certainly.
1: Stephanie, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: Shifting production from baijo or perfume to hand sanitizer is just one change rippling through the global economy, with many more to come. It's far too soon to add them all up and know what the long-term economic impact of the pandemic could be. But history can offer some clues, not all of them comforting.
4: For as long as humans have been living in cities and and building trade networks, which is quite a long time, they've been vulnerable to widespread outbreaks of disease.
1: Ryan Avent writes the free exchange column on economics.
4: And over the past 2,000 years, history records a wide range of pandemics, many of which have had some pretty surprising economic consequences, not necessarily what you might have expected.
1: Well, what kind of surprises do you mean?
4: I think one thing that we learn from ancient history is that times of stability and peace and prosperity, which foster trade and economic growth, the sort of things that we saw, for instance, under the Roman Empire, are also conducive to the spread uh, of pandemics. And that, in fact, those pandemics can then undermine the very things that allow for that stability and trade in the first place. So uh, Rome in the second century AD was a very prosperous place. It was richer than societies would be, again, for, for more than a thousand years. But then it faced a series of pandemics, which really destroyed the empire's capacity to maintain uh, trade routes over the Mediterranean to maintain its roads throughout the empire. And so what we saw was this cycle in which the, the blow struck by a series of plagues hurt the state, hurt its ability to guarantee trade routes, and then because the state was poor as a consequence of that, it entered this downward spiral, which really uh, marked the beginning of the end of the Western Roman Empire.
1: And so if those pandemics were spread in part because of a, a wider reach across regions, indeed across the world, it, it's as if having a good trade network is, is essentially containing the seeds of, of your own downfall.
4: I think that's right. I mean, I, th- one of the, the, the best ways to understand the vulnerabilities that we have here is that they're kind of an inevitable consequence of the things that allow us to be prosperous. Things like trade routes. Things like large cities with dense populations, those are very good for growth, but they're also the things that make us vulnerable uh, to pathogens. Now, it is worth noting that in some cases, pandemics, as horrible as they are and as terrible as whole as they take, their long-run economic consequences can occasionally be positive.
1: How so? I mean, give me an economist's silver lining here.
4: One example of this would be the the Black Death the Great Plague which struck uh, much of the world but hit Europe in the 14th century and killed about one-third to two-thirds of the European population, just an astounding toll. But when economic historians have looked back at the long-run effects of this, they've noted a a few interesting things. The biggest effect that it had immediately was that there was a sudden scarcity of labor, and that increased the bargaining power that laborers had relative to to landowners, and that in turn contributed to the breakdown of, of the feudal economy. But then it also seems to have put parts of Europe onto this new growth path that kind of paved the way for industrialization. So as laborers found their incomes going up, because there were fewer of them around, they were able to purchase more manufactured goods which were produced in cities. And this led to higher rates of urbanization. And that kind of pushed these places onto a different trajectory that led toward industrialization.
1: I mean, it's it's hard to, to take the threat of death now and think about some sort of long-run economic effects about them, but the, the, the mechanism seems clear enough. Fewer, fewer workers equals workers with, with higher bargaining power. Is that something that you, has been seen in, in other pandemics?
4: It has, actually. And I want to make clear that this is not a reason to cheer on the disease. You know, obviously the human costs are terrible, and we're just sort of thinking about what the long-run economic effects might be. And so I think the coronavirus that we're facing now— is not likely to to take nearly as large a toll as these past pandemics. But because people are going to be in isolation, they're not going to be able to go to work and, and, and be in warehouses and offices as before. This might lead to some pressure on firms to experiment with automation, to experiment with new remote work technologies. And so it is possible that we end up kind of having a long run effect on technology use and on productivity that ends up being a silver lining from having to deal with this whole pandemic mess, doesn't make it all worthwhile, but it could be something that it sort of softens the blow just the littlest bit.
1: Well, you suggest that maybe new technology might get a boost from this pandemic, but that wholesale rewriting of the economy that you were talking about in the, in the case of the Romans, is that something you think could come from this?
4: Well, I think it's certainly possible. I, I think it's important to realize that the scale of the of the mortality from this epidemic is, is is going to be much, much less than pandemics that we faced in the past. At the same time, our society today is much more complex. We have this highly integrated global economy, and so it may take much less of a, a, a of a disruption from the pandemic to to have some real long run effects but i think if, if we if we look back at, at how pandemics have affected societies over time, what we see is that there are often kind of an array of underlying forces at work pushing a society in one direction or another, and sometimes pandemics are kind of the nudge that really make a critical difference and alter history in an important way. And and I think in some ways you might want to see the epidemic as kind of a preview of some of the challenges we might face as a result of climate change or other sorts of things like that. And so we see this sort of long-run shift in fortunes across countries perhaps because of the coronavirus and it's not something that it does all by itself but that it sort of is working with these other forces that are at play and we we end up looking back in 30 or 40 years and saying wow that was a really definitive moment in terms of economic trajectories of china or america or europe
1: ryan thanks very much for your time
4: thank you jason always a pleasure
1: To follow all of The Economist's coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic and how it's swiftly reshaping the world, visit economist.com slash coronavirus. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.
0: Selling a little or a lot.